Well, good morning, everybody. Last week we began uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we're going to continue our journey through this great chapter on faith today. I've called it What Faith Looks Like. What Faith Looks Like. It reminds us of all of those who have run the journey of faith before us. So please grab your Bible and join me in Hebrews 11, verse 23. Hebrews 11:23. please grab your sermon notes or download them on your app as well. So this chapter is going to be telling us over and over again what faith is. It defines faith by describing to us what it looks like or, or how it behaves. Sixteen descriptions of faith for us to ponder. And I'd like you to think of them sort of like 16 facets to this beautiful diamond that we call faith. And I must say how much I've enjoyed Hebrews chapter 11. It's my favorite chapter in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's just been a uh, grand study, and uh, you can just sort of feel the crescendo growing as we get to Hebrews 11. It's been building for the last nine months, heading toward this chapter, in my opinion, how we endure in our faith, how to live out our lives by faith. And we begin with this reminder from last week. We're going to review the first half of the chapter, and it began with what faith is. What faith is. First of all, faith trusts God for the unseen. The author says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we see things that the world can't see. The world says, seeing is believing. You've heard that, right? Seeing is believing. God says, no, believing is seeing. We believe, therefore, we see. Let me give you a great definition I read this week about, of faith. Faith is belief plus unbelief, and it's acting on the belief part. In other words, faith isn't necessarily 100% certainty about something. In fact, if you wait until you have 100% certainty, you will likely be paralyzed in life. Faith is stepping out in obedience in spite of your doubts and fears. Faith is belief plus unbelief, and it's acting on the belief part. Let's say you're thinking about some big decision. That's often where our faith is best seen. Maybe it's making a big move or adoption or, or a new job or getting married, something like that. And it's not that you don't have some sincere questions, but faith seeks God's guidance. It asks for counsel from wise uh, believers. It weighs the pros and cons, and then it acts on the faith part in spite of the questions that you might still have. Faith trusts God for the unseen. It acts in obedience to the promises of God, even when we don't know exactly how it's going to play itself out. That's first. Second, faith receives God's approval. It receives God's approval. The verse 2 says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. When Moses stood up for righteousness, and when David killed Goliath, when the three Hebrew children refused to bow down, when Nehemiah rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, and when Rahab hid the spies, and Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, God looked down from heaven and gave a witness. He said, Amen, that's my daughter, that's my son, those are my kids, and I'm so proud of their faith. See, God loves it when his people dare to trust him. He loves it so much that he gives a witness to the world, that's my kid, and I'm proud of them. He gives his commendation, it says. He says, I like that. Where do you hear the 
phrase, I like that, or to like something. My daughter Bethlehem asked for my phone a few days ago to see how many likes she had received on this photo she posted. Uh, it led into this whole conversation about whose approval are we really looking for. Okay, do you, do you think God likes that posting that you put on there? And how do we get a, God's approval anyway if we want it? What's the answer to that question? How do we get God's approval? What does Hebrews 11.2 say? Part of the answer, it's by our faith. It's our faith. Third, faith explains the universe. It explains the universe. And that refers to the question of how the world came to be. Did we just evolve from molecules to man by some undirected random act of chance? You know, that's what many proponents of evolution would say. They say that evolution explains the universe and everything in it. But Hebrews 11.3 tells us that God designed the universe. God designed it and he spoke it into existence, it says. He spoke and stars filled the sky. He spoke and mountains rose. The seas were created. He spoke and birds flew and fish swam and horses galloped. God spoke and suddenly man came into being and he breathed the breath of life into Adam and gave, gave him the name and the job of naming the animals. And then he put Adam to sleep and took a rib and he created Eve. And then God performed the very first wedding ceremony. See, scientific evidence plus faith leads us right to God. Science without faith leaves us in a hopeless quandary. Faith explains the universe. And that's the first facet of faith that we see in Hebrews 11. The fact that God is the creator of all things. And from there, the writer now moves on to his list of 15 more triumphs of faith. The triumphs of faith in verses 4 to 35. And the first one is this, verse 4, that faith obeys God. And that, of course, is a reference to Abel, who offered a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother did. Listen, God knows the heart of every worshiper, of every person. And God looked at the hearts of Cain and Abel and judged that one man was obedient and the other man wasn't, as evidenced by the sacrifices they brought to God. And we learn from Cain and Abel that faith is coming to God on his own terms, not on our own. It's true faith that pleases God, and that's what Abel had. Faith obeys God. And then we saw that faith pleases God, verses 5 and 6, and that would be Enoch, who at the age of 65 began to walk with God when Methuselah was born. Perhaps he was like many men who don't really get serious until they look into the face of that firstborn child, and suddenly they realize what a great responsibility is, that is upon them. Perhaps that was, that's what happened to Enoch. In any case, Enoch walked with God for 300 years, it says. And one day God said to him, you know, why don't you just come home with me today? And Enoch walked right into eternity. God took him home without ever having to experience death. And then we saw that faith saves your family, verse 7. And that refers to Noah who built the ark when he had never seen rain. He preached righteousness to a generation that cared nothing for the message that he preached. And when the world was going to hell around him, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So he built that ark and he saved his family. And beloved, I encourage you to take great heart from Noah's example. 
It's a reminder that we can be godly in a very ungodly world. We need to stop complaining about how bad things are today because they were far worse in Noah's day. There were only eight true believers in the whole world. We have so many more spiritual advantages than Noah did, and yet he had the courage to step out in obedience. So should we. And then we saw faith steps out wherever God leads. That's verses 8 to 10. That'd be the story of Abraham, who left Ur of the Chaldees as a prosperous middle-aged businessman, who heard the voice of God and departed for parts unknown. Living by faith means stepping out in obedience to God, leaving the results to God. No guarantee of a long life, no guarantee of great success. You may have those blessings, but then again, maybe not. The life of faith means I'm going to be the man, I'm going to be the woman God asked me to be. I'm going to step out in faith and follow him wherever he leads. And then faith trusts God for the impossible. Verses 11 and 12. Sarah believed the promise of God for a child when she was 90 years old. 90. And I'm not saying that it all went real pretty for Abraham and Sarah as they waited, but in the end, God brought 100-year-old Abraham and his 90-year-old wife together and brought forth Isaac. And the Holy Spirit tells us here, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. And then faith believes God for what it sees in the distance. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but they saw them and greeted them from afar. They greeted them from afar. And that refers to all of the Old Testament believers, like passengers on an ocean liner, waving as they passed islands in the distance. Okay, they lived and they died and they never received all of the promises. But they never gave up. God was proud of them because of their faith. He called them his sons and his daughters. And then we saw that faith makes great sacrifices. That's Abraham who offered his son Isaac on the altar, which was a type of the coming death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus many centuries later. And in so doing, Abraham demonstrated that true faith goes all in for God. It doesn't withhold even the dearest of things, and it makes great sacrifices when called to, called upon. Faith makes great sacrifices for God. And finally, faith sees beyond one's own death. That's verses 20 to 22. The writer of Hebrews gives the examples of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, father, son, and grandson, who at the point of death looked to the future. They weren't just living for this life. They were looking to the future. Isaac blessed his sons, Jacob his grandsons, and Joseph looked to the distant future and said, don't, listen, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. When you leave here, when you go to the promised land, take my bones with you. Because Joseph knew that death can never cancel out the promises of God. Faith looks beyond one's own life and leaves a legacy for the future. A legacy for the future. And that brings us to where we left off last weekend. So far, the Holy Spirit has taught us, taught us much about the faith of these great men and women in the first half of Hebrews 11. And we're going to continue now to look at more triumphs of faith, beginning at verse 23. 
Next, we see that faith chooses obedience to God over pleasure. Obedience to God. We've seen faith exemplified so far in the pre-patriarchal period and then in the patriarchs of the Hebrews. But listen, any list of faith, any list of great men and women of faith would be incomplete without Moses. The Hebrews considered themselves disciples of Moses. And thus the next six verses are about him and his parents and how their choices demonstrated so much faith. Let's pick it up at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Remember how Moses' parents hid him in direct contradiction to the order of Pharaoh that every male child among the Hebrews should be put to death. They hid him for three months until finally they felt led by God to set him afloat in a basket in the Nile River where Pharaoh's daughter found him and ended up adopting him, raising him as an heir to the throne of Egypt. There in the palace, Moses enjoyed all the benefits and the comforts of royalty. Although he knew the Egyptian language and culture, although he was raised in the lap of luxury, he counted it all as nothing because he knew who he was and he knew where he had come from. And the choices Moses made when he came of age ensured that there were no pyramids built in Egypt in his honor. For Moses chose to obey God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's how the author puts it. And it reminds us there are times when our faith calls us to draw a line in the sand, as it were, to draw a line between what civil authorities tell us and what God commands us, between what the pleasures of the world offer us and what God says. And that takes great faith. It takes great faith today to disengage from this culture of pleasure and to live for the mission that God has given us. As disciples of Jesus Christ, our mission is what? It's to make disciples who in turn make disciples for him. And our challenge this year, if you remember back to my vision sermon a couple of months ago, the challenge is to bring one to become a disciple who will grow strong in their commitment to Christ. And a great tool that we are preparing to launch into is our happiness series this fall. Peter mentioned it a few minutes ago. In just four weeks, we're starting our fall sermon series in our all-church small group study, and it's called Happiness. I know the title is a bit of a sleeper, but we've been looking at these materials. In fact, we reviewed dozens of materials. This one we picked, it's it's authored by Randy Alcorn, and we believe, by, after looking at it, it's going to be a fantastic study. I'm so excited about it. And just as important of a study as it will be for us, it's going to be a great outreach opportunity to our friends and our family and our neighbors. Because God has put in every human heart this craving for happiness. 
We're born with that. So we're sending out invite cards in the next few weeks, mailing tens of thousands of invite cards. We're going to be giving you some as well. And they're going to look something like this. Listen to the, uh, what it says on the back of this that your neighbors are going to be receiving. Everybody wants to be happy, but for many, happiness is elusive. What about you? What makes you happy? The Bible tells us that God is happy, and he wants us to be happy too. What else, why else would it call him the happy God? Why else would he call the gospel the good news of great joy? Why else would he go to such extraordinary lengths to ensure our eternal happiness? Join us for a remarkable six-week study to learn why God is happy and how you can experience sustainable happiness in your life. Please choose to take advantage of this series coming up as an opportunity to bring guests and to invite friends to join you. Again, faith chooses obedience to God over pleasure. And next, faith forges ahead against great odds. That's verses 29 to 30. The children of Israel experienced one of the mightest miracles of all times when they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. We read about that in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Two great examples of faith, the crossing of the Red Sea and the Battle of Jericho. In fact, nothing seemed quite as absurd as the sight of thousands of Jews marching silently around the walled city of Jericho while the priests blew trumpets. There was no way those Jews were ever going to get into that fortified city without a miracle. I mean, you talk about impossible odds, and that was it. But God. But God. Two of the most important words in the Bible. See, when we start to count up the problems that we're facing, they begin to look overwhelming, don't they? Some of you maybe feel sort of backed into a corner today. Maybe your situation looks sort of hopeless. If so, remember these two words, but God. Then we come to the story of Rahab the harlot, verse 31, and we see how faith redeems an unsavory past. Rahab had three strikes against her. First of all, she was a woman in that culture. That was a strike. Secondly, she was a Gentile woman. And third, she was a prostitute. And the Bible makes no attempt to cover up her downplay, her past. Let's read her brief account in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The first city the Jews had to reckon with when they entered the promised land was Jericho. And because Rahab hid the spies, they promised to spare her if they would keep, her, keep them safe, and then if she would hang that scarlet cord outside her window. And when the great invasion came, she was spared and all of her family, while the whole city was destroyed. And her story teaches us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. Not only get, did God deliver Rahab, but he redeemed her life, her family, and she became the mother of Boaz and ultimately 
an ancestress in the royal line of the Lord Jesus Christ, all because of faith. Finally, we see how faith experiences great miracles, verses 32 to 35. Great miracles happened through faith. Consider this list of heroes as I read verses 32 to 35. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. These wonderful examples teach us that God often intervenes on behalf of his people in miraculous ways. Sometimes those miracles were in the heat of combat where a vast army was defeated by the faithful people of God. We only have to read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 to understand what it means to quench the power of the flame. The phrase, women receive their dead back to life again, reminds us of the stories, many Old Testament stories and New Testament stories. The ultimate of miracles, the resurrection from the dead. And in all of these examples, the writer calls to mind people who found themselves in situations that were humanly impossible. And when they cried out to God, God answered. Listen, Christianity is a religion of miracles. If you take the, re- the miraculous out of our faith, you're left with nothing but a set of ethical instructions without power to change the heart. Subtract the miracles and suddenly Christianity becomes just like any other man-made religion. See, without the miracles, we have no good news to share to the world. For the Bible is a book of miracles from first to last. Take away the miracles and suddenly the Bible is no longer the Word of God. It's just another book. You can no more take miracles out of Christianity than you can take the light out of the sun. Without miracles, there is no Christianity. Think about that. Think about how our faith depends upon the miraculous. After all, our faith rests upon two remarkable miracles, most of all. First... We believe that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ through the the, uh, virgin birth. And second, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if we're not astounded by those miracles, we should be. Well, that concludes the first part of Hebrews chapter 11. We've seen that faith steps out in obedience wherever God leads and often results in miracles. In other words, faith brings great triumphs in a believer's life. However, that is not the complete picture. Does faith always end up with a triumph and with a miracle? The answer is no. And so next we read about the trials of faith, the trials of faith, verses 35 to 38. Because it would be both unrealistic and harmful to have the expectation that faith always produces triumphs. Even though faith always pleases God, sometimes faith endures great suffering. So remember the author of Hebrews is writing to these people, these 
Hebrew believers who were suffering greatly at the time they received this letter. Let's go back once again to chapter 10 and remember what they were going through when they got this letter. He says, Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were being thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken, taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. In other words, faith sometimes pays a great price. If you don't understand this up front, it can be devastating to your faith when you go through great trials. And so the Holy Spirit wants His children to be aware. Sometimes we do the right thing. We act in faith and obedience to God, and we still suffer for it. Listen to these accounts in verses 35 to 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You say, who were these poor, unfortunate souls he's talking about? What had they done to deserve such tragedy? Well, the writer simply calls them others here in verse 36. They were the others who lived by faith too. These men and women who endured such suffering were living by faith just as much as Noah and Abraham and Joshua. Their faith wasn't weaker. If anything, their faith was stronger because it enabled them to endure such incredible suffering. They're not lesser saints because they found no miracles. They are greater saints because they were faithful to God even in the midst of the storm. And the whole point is this. They had great, say, uh, great faith, and they suffered anyway. There was nothing wrong with their faith, beloved. Listen, nothing. They were just as pleasing to God in their agony as the saints who were delivered through great miracles. Some were delivered, but others suffered and died. All lived by faith, and God was pleased with them all. So we're talking about how faith sometimes endures great suffering. To learn more about how that's going on in our world today, and as you know it is, a couple of uh, resources I want to suggest for you. One is uh, Voice of the Martyrs. They have a website. They also have publications that we've used in our home that are great. Voice of the Martyrs. You can just Google that. Or persecution.org is another one that's, that's very good. And then if you have younger kids and grandkids in the third through eighth grade range, I want to suggest a resource from our, um, our library. It's called the Torchlighters DVD series. And it's subtitled Heroes of the Faith. And that, too, would be a great tool for us to use with our kids and grandkids. Torchlighters, Heroes of the Faith. By the way, here's what Jesus said about suffering for him. This is from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. 
be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Well, that brings us now to the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 11 and to the victory of faith. He closes by talking about the victory of faith in verses 39 and 40. So the writer has run the gamut of all of these human experiences to demonstrate that faith can endure any and all circumstances. Those who passed through such experiences demonstrated patient endurance. They endured through faith. Let's see how he concludes the chapter now in verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So who's the writer talking about here, here in verse 39? Who are the, all these that have been commended through their faith? Well, that would be all the men and women that he's just spoken about, just listed in chapter 11. And he means that, that we can step back and we can look at these people, this long list of heroes, all of them as a group, and know God gave them a witness. These are my kids. Amen. I love them. I'm proud of them. They walked by faith in me. From Enoch to Rahab, from Samson to Sarah, from Daniel to Elijah, from Moses to Jeremiah and Esther, they're all commended by God. But then he says they lacked one thing. What would that be? What did they lack? They never received the promise, he says. But we have. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. All these heroes lived and died before Jesus came. And yet they lived out their faith. They had only the shadow. We have the substance. They had the sacrifices. We have Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the sacrifices. They saw the coming of Christ from afar. We know him personally. They knew so little. We know so much. They had a tiny spark of light. We have the light of the world. Any of those people we just read about in Hebrews 11 would have traded places with you and with me in a moment. To live in an age when God's plan of salvation had been fulfilled and where the Holy Spirit actually lives inside his people. I mean, wow. We are so privileged today. And so they managed to do great things by faith. Therefore, we have no excuse if we don't, living today. That's the whole point. We have so much more evidence to base our faith on today. So, beloved, he's saying, let's endure. You can do it. Having said all of that, let's consider now some lessons of the faith from Hebrews chapter 11. And I believe we can safely draw three of them. Number one. Those who live by faith will see great triumphs and endure great trials. Understand that both are true. Both are possible. Great triumphs and great trials. Lesson number two. Those who live by faith will be misunderstood by the world. Don't expect everybody to understand you or what God's asking you to do. They won't. In 1807, Robert Morrison boarded a ship in New York City on his way to China, where he became the first Protestant missionary in that great land. 1807. After 113 days at sea, 
he finally arrived on the southern coast of China. Seven years later, Robert and Mary baptized their first convert in China. Seven years later. The Morrisons went on to serve for 27 years as missionaries before their death. But it is said that on his initial voyage to China, someone came up and started talking to Robert and derisively asked him when they learned he was, what he was going to China for, so do you expect to convert China? His reply stands out. He said, no, but I expect God will. I love that. When he finally baptized his first convert seven years later, he wrote these words in his journal. May he be the first fruits of a great harvest, one of millions who shall come and be saved on the day of wrath to come. One of millions, he wrote. See, God gave him the faith to see beyond his own meager beginning to a day when a vast multitude of Chinese would be saved. On that day, no one could have believed it was, would be possible. I mean, you do the math. One convert in seven years in the land of China. It was a pipe dream for him to talk about millions of Chinese coming to Christ. The Morrisons, like so many heroes of the faith, died without seeing their dreams fully realized. But over the years, other workers came after them, including Hudson Taylor and many others. Over time, the gospel would spread very slowly throughout the land of China. Then came the communist takeover in 1949. You know, when the communists came to power, there were something like 700,000 Christians in China. And then for years, the church was persecuted. Pastors were imprisoned. Churches were destroyed. Many lost their lives for their faith. But when the bamboo curtain began to lift in 1980, many feared that the Church of China had been destroyed. At it? During the years of oppression, the Church of Jesus Christ in China grew to 10 million strong. 10 million. Today, some people say that in China, there are 130 million believers. It's the most amazing story of church growth in the last decade, excuse me, in the last 100 years. Today in China, there are more Christians than members of the Communist Party who tried to stamp them out. And I mention that to reflect on the faith of Robert and Mary Morrison, who back in 1814 saw the day when millions of Chinese would come to Christ. That's how faith works, my friend. And it leads me to some final questions for you and for me to consider today. Who will be the next hero of the faith? Why not you? Who will respond to God's call to share the gospel? Why not you? Who will stand up against the world Again, why not you? Who will march around the walls? Who will dream big dreams for God? Who will lead their family to follow them in faith? Why not you, my friend? Who will give up the pleasures of the world for the sake of the cross? Why not you? Why not me? That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's the call to endure by faith just like those who have gone before us, even if we are misunderstood.
Who will be the next hero of the faith? Friend, I pray it will be you. And then lesson number three, those who live by faith will not be disappointed, will not be disappointed in the end. Because God calls us to live like this, and God promises a great reward for all who do. He promises to reward those who do. Friend, I don't know exactly what you're going through today, but then again, I don't need to, really. Because I know the God who has promised to go through it with you. And I know that you can trust Him. You can trust Him. And then I would add this invitation today before I close. For anyone here that has... uh, heard this message, but you really haven't taken yet that first step of faith in Jesus for forgiveness. Friend, if that's you, I want you to understand you can't earn your forgiveness. You can't earn your way to heaven by doing good things or being a good person. But you can receive God's forgiveness by faith, by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for you. It's a gift by faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. And if you've never taken that step of faith, I invite you to take it as we close in prayer now. Just pray along with me. So let's bow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. For there is no uh, use in putting our faith in something unless it's reliable. And you are reliable. You are faithful. God, we thank you that you sent your son and that Jesus Christ died on the cross as the payment for our sin. Thank you for such mercy and such love. And I offer this invitation today. For anyone that's here who's not taken that that initial step of faith to you, may they may respond in faith today, putting their faith in the believing part, even if they don't understand everything. Friend, if that's you, just silently pray in your heart with me something like this. Father, I need, I want your forgiveness. I understand I can't earn it. So today I trust Jesus, his death and resurrection for my sin. And I invite him to be my savior and to take over my life completely. And then help me to live my life by faith and so be pleasing to you. Help me to live by faith and honor and glorify your name. For we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen. Amen. So if you would, please grab your communication cards and uh, pull them out of your bulletin and finish filling those out at this time. If you prayed that prayer with me for the first time, there's a box on the back of your card. I'd love you to mark that so I can send you a letter this week and some more information about that great decision you just made. Uh, We're going to ask you to drop that communication card along with prayer requests and any information you request in the offering bag as it comes around in just a minute. Also, just a reminder, there'll be a prayer team down front. If we can pray with you and encourage you in any way at the end of the service, we would absolutely love to do that today. So we're going to close just a little bit differently today. We're going to watch a two-minute video, and then we're going to respond in worship after that. So as you meditate on what you've heard today, I want you to be asking God, how do you want me to respond today in faith? So ushers, you can just wait till after this video, and then wait for the music before we take the offering. Let's watch this video. Let's respond in worship. In mid-19th century India, A man converted to Christianity by Welsh missionaries was confronted by the chief of his village. The chief commanded him to renounce his newfound faith in Christ or face grave consequences. In response to the chief's threats, however, the man only replied,
Infuriated, the village chief dragged the man's family outside and began to threaten them with bodily harm. The man, unflinching, responded to the leader's ultimatum. Desperate to save face among the people, the village chief slaughtered the man's family in front of him. He turned his eyes to the steadfast convert, demanding that he either deny the works of Jesus or face his own death. In the center of the public square, the man was bound, beaten, thrown to the ground, and slowly crushed to death. But not without a final defiance of the village chief. As his bones were breaking and his lungs collapsing, the man's final words rang out in song through the village square. The call of Christ is clear. Forsake the dark and powerless system of this world and cling to the saving hope of the cross. Then and only then can you look to the shackles of your former life and declare that there is no turning back.